0: Welcome to the Purim podcast today, Esther chapter 9. Haman is dead. The war has been fought on the 13th of Adar. The Jews have indeed defended themselves and been wildly successful beyond their expectations. And now it's time to celebrate. And we read that in all of the provinces of the kingdom, they fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and they rested on the 14th day, and made it a day of feasting. But in Shushan, they fought both on the 13th and the 14th day, and they rested on the 15th, and made it day of feasting and merrymaking. The interesting phrase here is, Yom Mishteh V'simcha. Okay, so now what are we gonna talk about the rest of the chapter? The chapter actually talks about four different stages in the establishment of this celebration. Verse 17 and 18 say that on that year, when they rested from their fighting, the sense of relief, the sense of jubilation caused them to immediately celebrate. We then see that they did it in subsequent years. But then along come the authorities. (laughs) We have, (laughs) Vayikhtov Mordechai atadvareme'ela. Mordechai wrote these things down and suggested they should do this as a formal thing. Bechol shana b'shana. And indeed, it says that the Jews, They accepted for themselves and for their future generations to make these two days into very special days. But we're not finished there. We get to verse 29. And now, Esther Hamalka Batavichail UMordechai Yehudi et kol tokef lekayemeti geret apurim Once again, Esther steps in, in her Hebrew language, her Hebrew name, Esther Hamalka or Mordechai Yehudi, to establish the chag. Why again and again and again? What's going on? And I think it's quite clear. This is the first chag the first festival, the first Jewish holiday, to be established after the exile. What legitimacy do we have to make new Jewish holidays? There might be an equivalent interesting question about uh, which is discussed nowadays and has been discussed over the last 70 years about whether one should say Hallel with a bracha on Yom Ha'atzmah Israel Independence Day. Some people will say, well, this is just a a day when we want a war. (laughs) What's religious about it? Others will say that we're not allowed to establish new days of celebration which aren't written in the Torah or which haven't been discussed in the Talmud. I imagine the same discussion was going on here. It was easy to celebrate in the year that they won the war. There was a sense of relief. But who gave them the legitimacy to establish Purim in the calendar as a regular fixture? Who allowed them to establish new holy days or new holidays in the Jewish calendar? And more than that to maybe add a book like the Book of Esther to the Tanakh. This is radical stuff, and it seems like it was difficult for them to get this through, to get a consensus, to get Jewish communities around the world to sign on to this. And therefore, on the one hand, there was sort of the popular initiative of doing it every single year, but the minute people started trying to formalize this, they started coming up with opposition, and therefore we see letter after letter, edict after edict to try and formulate this first rabbinic holiday, this is, this is quite something. But let us, as we do, take a step back and look at the big picture. We have noticed that Megillat Esther has a symmetry to it. The things which are, happen in one direction in the beginning happen in a reverse direction at the end. We mentioned, for example, the ring of the king being given to Haman in the beginning and then being handed to Mordechai at the end. The threat of annihilation and then, of course, the victory and so forth and so forth. Well, chapter 9 is no exception. If you go back to chapter 1, the king made two feasts. One feast was for all of the provinces, the 127 districts of his kingdom. And then, after he had made that feast for 180 days, following that, we had another feast for Shushan. Here also, in our chapter, as the Jews celebrate, on the 14th of Adar, we have the celebration for all the 127 provinces. But on the 15th of Badar, we have the celebration for the capital city, for Shushan. The beginning matches the end. However, there is one very significant difference. You know, I think we've mentioned that the whole Megillah and Persian society seems to have loved the Mishte, the notion of the drinking feast. It was really part of their culture, and if we saw the first uh, chapter, it seemed to be associated with lots of drunkenness and loose behavior. However, we see something unique when the Jews decide to celebrate. In all the other cases, we have Mishteh, a drinking party, but no Simcha, no joy. And now we have Mishteh V Simcha, we have drinking and joy. What is the source of the joy? I think the source of the joy is another third element. Because what the Jews do, and they do this quite instinctively, is They make it a day of rejoicing and feasting and Yom Tov, but they send gifts one to the other. Later on, when Mordechai formalizes the practices of Purim, he adds even a further element where he talks about Mishter V'Simcha, feasting rejoicing mishloach manot food gifts to friends and matanot la'evyonim and giving gifts to the poor so actually here we see that we have all the four practices there are four practices which one is obligated to do in the celebration of purim number 1 is to hear the megillah both in the night and in the day number 2 is to have a mishteh to have a Su'udah, to, to have a festive meal preferably to eat bread because that's what considered to be a meal and then you get the opportunity to say Al-Hanissim, the special insertion into the prayers, which is added on Purim. But there are two other obligations. One is that one is to give gifts to a friend. Food gifts. It says, Mishlach Manots. So you're meant to give two types of foods to a single friend. And then Matanots You're also meant to give money to the poor. I think that this is the core of the notion of Simcha. Because joy is not when you indulge. Joy is when you give. Drinking and eating can only give you a certain level of satisfaction and inner warmth. But it's when you help out other people that you really achieve this level of inner, inner happiness. Now in truth, this seems to go to a very, very deep stratum in the Jewish notion of Chagim. Because when we open the book of Nehemiah, a second temple book, actually contemporary with the Purim story, or maybe even a little afterwards. And they talk about celebrating Rosh Hashanah. They say that the people went home to eat and to drink, and to send gifts in one other place, to give gifts to people who don't have. Because it would be wrong for us to be celebrating, having fine festive meals and drinking you know, luxurious repasts and there's people who don't have anything. And this goes back to the Torah's description of the festivals, as mentioned in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 16, where it says, you should rejoice on your festival, you, your son, your daughter, and your servant. But then it talks about also Hager, the stranger, the Yatom, the orphan, the widow, in other words, people who generally were seen at the fringes of society, both in terms of their status, but also in terms of their financial means, you're meant to provide with them. And in fact, the joy, the joy of the festival is indeed in the fact that you provide for others. And the person who puts it in the most extreme way is the Rambam, Maimonides when he lists the laws of celebrating on a festival, on the Chagim, he talks about everything that you have to have and you should have festive meals. And then he says, and when you eat and when you drink, if you want to reference, this comes from Hilchot Yom Tov, the sixth chapter of the Rambam. And he says, when you eat and when you drink, (laughs) you have to give to the stranger, the orphan, the widow, with all the other desperate poor. But anybody or anybody who locks the doors of his house and eats and drinks just with his family, and he doesn't provide any funds and he doesn't provide food and drink for the poor, that's not called simchat mitzvah. That's not the simcha for religious celebration. That is just the simcha, the joy of your stomach. Very derogatory words. And this is where we actually have a tradition over all of the Chagim to give charity. We're approaching Purim, but after Purim comes Pesach. There's a tradition of Kimcha de Pischa, that we make sure that we provide food for anybody in the community who doesn't have money for matzah and wine and other festive needs. And Every community has a drive, a charity drive before Pesach. Likewise, around the Chagim of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Sukkot, there is always a charity being given because it is repentance, prayer and charity which remove the evil decree and therefore there is always a lot of charity giving at this time. So now we understand what it is that makes the Jewish celebration and not just Mishteh. It's not about drinking, it's not about getting drunk, it's actually about caring about others and that caring of the others creates the ultimate sense of joy. We're going to end off this podcast today by talking about a very interesting phrase. I've mentioned that Mordechai and Esther were having a pretty hard time in getting this established as a fixture into the calendar and in that process it says ha va'al va'al that the Jews accepted to do this for them and for all of their children for all future times. For ya'avor. There's a fascinating Talmudic passage in Masechet Shabbat, uh, Daf Pechet, which talks about the experience of the revelation at Sinai when Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, accepted the Torah. And it asked the question, wasn't there something coercive about it? After all, God came along, took a slave people, and sort of gave them everything they needed, and then said, if you want to carry on with me, you better keep this Torah. The way that's sort of like imagined by the Midrash is, kafar aleihem He almost held the mountain over the head and said, listen, you know, either accept the Torah or else. And the Gemara says, Mikan oraita. we might have an excuse to turn around to God and says, listen, you know, we didn't quite realize what we were getting into. We were just slaves. We were newly freed. We didn't understand. So the Talmud has an answer. And it says, you know what? You might be right. But historically, we re-accepted the Torah at the time of Purim. What? We re-accepted the Torah at the time of Purim? And they quote those lines, Kimu v'kiblu, that the Jews accepted upon themselves uh, Veloy Avor. They accepted to keep this. Now, what, what is happening here? I mentioned before, you know, how do you look at the Purim events? Do you look at the Purim events as a sort of act of God? Or do you look at them as a just a, a victory? Were Jews happy to embrace their Jewish identity? After this threat of annihilation, of course, it's, it's dangerous to be a Jew. And this sense of that the Jews accepted to continue celebrating Purim year after year after year is, is a very interesting statement. We mentioned that the Jews of Shushan were pretty assimilated. Here they're choosing to make a deep statement about their Jewish identity, that we are indeed Jews and the people wanted to kill us and that we managed to continue as a Jewish people. I'd say more than that. Historically, We're talking about a time where we are after the destruction of the temple, after the exile. And we might have thought, okay, you know what? It was difficult to be a Jew in Judea. But now we're in Shushan. Now we'll assimilate. Now we'll blend in. And now we'll be safe. And yet the Jews, they were on the verge of being killed. And still, what do we see? Jews want to be Jews. The Talmud sees this as Jews. They've got every excuse not to be Jews. But they've decided that they are going to celebrate their future. They are going to celebrate the fact that the Jewish people are Misrael Chai. And that is a huge statement, which leads to a deep understanding that Jews have decided to be Jews. We haven't been forced to be Jews. We've decided of our own volition that we want to have a Jewish.